The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Of our own self-righteousness, for God, we all seek and lean into the safe arms of our Lord, who sees us as righteous because of Christ's righteousness, not our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 2. This is your first time to Community Bible Church. My name is John Moffat. For the last six years, I worked with the college and young adult, and six months ago, seven months ago, we started a church down in Franklin with about 12 families from here. And so we just went to every Sunday night this last week. So pray for us. I haven't done that since I've been a Baptist. <laughs> Takes a lot of energy. So pray for the South Campus. Watching certain movies when I was a kid seemed to me real, believable, and exciting. The world it was set in made you feel that if it could, it could be a real place with real people, real events, the story, special effects, animation made the story believable. And as many of you, I'm sure, have had the same experience in your childhood, you have had a few movies that had that kind of influence on you as well. You know, going now, going back and watching those same movies with my kids, they don't have the same effect as they used to before. It's often disappointing. The quality is below average. The acting is, well, it was the 80s. And the settings is not very believable. What happened? Well, I grew older, I guess. With time, my childish naivety wore off. And these movies that blew my mind as I sit down and watch them with my kids, I wonder why in the world did I ever like this movie? My kids look at me with utter amazement. Dad, this is nothing like you described it. (laughs) For some of you, it was when you finally realized Santa Claus wasn't real. Well, only for those who truly believe, right? Right? Just checking. The parallel here of this experience is very similar to this, actually strikingly similar to the gospel. If you grew up listening to the gospel, hearing the gospel as a child, or have been a follower of Christ for a number of years, the gospel naivety, so to speak, can and has worn off. Now, King David in Psalm 51, 12 says, he cries out to God in a song saying, "'Restore unto me the joy of your salvation.'" Recently, that's been ringing true in my ear. What does he mean by that? When a sinner feels the grace of God pull them out of their bondage and into adoption, the reality of the gospel feels unexplainably joyful. Everything is fresh and exciting. Now, children interact with the gospel this way. Kids never have that would, that would never happen as, as far as, as relates to the gospel. 
kids never get to the point when they're listening to the gospel and go, you know, I don't know if that part of it's really real. This part about grace. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a movie and you're sitting with somebody and they go, that would never happen. I hate that person. I don't hate you. I don't like that phrase. <laughs> it's interesting when sharing the gospel with children, that's not their response. You know, I've, I've had the joy, the personal joy of sharing the gospel with children for years. It was my first introductory into ministry, was children's ministry. And now I have the privilege of sharing the gospel to my kids. You know what they never say to me when sharing, when they share a concern, if they share one at all about the gospel, they never share a concern about the lack of morality that relates to the gospel. They simply hear of God's love for sinners and belief. No but what ifs. I pray for our own children here in this church, my own personally, that the reality, that reality never changes for them as they grow older. But it does and has changed for a lot of us in this room. We kind of all move past that naive sense of the gospel, the simplicity of it. Excuse me. The pain of this world really has opened our eyes to the realities of life. The world isn't simple anymore. Oh, how we all long for those days. When we hear the gospel now, there feels as if there is a simplicity to it, almost too simple. It's good, it's wonderful, but belongs really in the children's section of Christianity, so to speak, the gospel that we hear at this church. When we take a closer look back at the original message of the gospel, it seems almost unbelievable. How could God truly forgive sinners and require nothing on their behalf? What once we embraced with open arms now seems a little ridiculous the longer we start looking at it. A little voice inside of us says, grown, mature believers should never accept this view of God. Look around you. You really think God will overlook the calamity he sees in this world? Not likely. They better get a grip soon before he comes back. There's the warning. Take morality serious. Of course, the question is, you mean the gospel? Take the gospel serious? I mean, if you keep overemphasizing grace, people will live however they want. So you see the gospel differently now. I get it. There is grace, but it's used sparingly. We won't want to confuse people. I understand now. It's not to be so naive to think that people will not take advantage of God's grace. We are protecting God. I get it, we're protecting God's holiness, got it. All throughout Jesus' ministry, the closer people came to the reality of grace, the harder it was for them to accept it. They would rather hold on to their own righteousness than accept Jesus as their righteousness. I mean, the longer I'm at this church, this phrase, is real to me. Grace is radical. It really is. Not what we do for Christ, but what Christ has done for us. That's the radical part, if I were to rewrite the book. So opposite of our nature, our natural bent. Grace twists our human psyche. 
when grace incarnate stood in all of his glory before humanity, and they would reason away his power. The depravity of man cannot accept a God who loves sinners and gives grace unconditionally. That's what happened when Jesus showed up on the scene. Nothing enraged Jesus more while on this earth than when those who should have known of God's grace rejected it. They ended up changing the good news and some simple, and some simply just ignored it altogether. Now here's what's interesting about Jesus as compared to modern Christianity. Jesus didn't attack those who were trapped in their sin. He didn't call the woman at the well what she was, according to her actions of five husbands. He called her to grace and she believed. He didn't call the shady character Zacchaeus a sleazy snake. Those around him did. He went to his house and showed him grace and he believed. Now, who did Jesus call a snake? Rotten corpse. The religious society that should have known better, but were leading people away from grace. That's when Jesus became enraged. Very different from our reaction. Jesus sees the lack of morality, presents grace. Jesus sees self-righteousness, anger. Jesus was angry because their cultural bigotry, pride, and self-righteousness is what got in the way of the message Israel has been handed. Now we have the setting for John 2. This is the account of the first cleansing of the temple. For years I've heard this passage preached, taught, and really it's to show, the way I've heard it was to show God's anger for commerce in the church. But this misses the point completely as we will see. God isn't against fundraising in the church. I happen to be raising money at the moment for a church plant. What we will observe in this passage this morning is God's zeal for the protection of the message of the gospel among his people, the fidelity of the gospel. John's an amazing writer. I've really enjoyed teaching and preaching John. His attention to simple details bring the life of Jesus to full color in his narrative. Simple details are important to John. You should never let a simple detail go by because they keep track of where John is leading you down his thought process. And just to remind us, John later on in the book says, I've written all of this, all of these accounts so that your faith may increase. It's the whole purpose. He doesn't point to morality, he points to faith. But yet we moralize John's book all the time for instance, in this passage. In verse 13, take note, it is no mistake that John mentions why Jesus is heading to the temple. It's during the Passover. Now, the Passover is a beautiful event, a beautiful time, a beautiful ceremony, a beautiful date for Israel. Passover was for them to remember how God had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt 
not because they have earned it. It was God's grace that delivered them. Moses didn't show up on the scene and say, because you've done this, because you've responded in this way, because of who you are, later on he tells Israel, I chose to redeem you out of Egypt because you were the least of all nations. It is the time of the year where they remember what God did for them as a picture of redemption. What was the actual Passover? They were to sacrifice the lamb. So the death angel would pass over them as a symbol of the lamb to come. God promised that he would give a lamb. Abraham and Isaac, we know this story. He takes them up to the mountain. And what does he tell Abraham? God will provide a lamb. And he does. And Later on, looking back to this event, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for Christ, our Passover lamb, he has been sacrificed. So the, the, the Passover lamb is making, him, making his way to the event, the shadow, the foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is mentioned to be at the temple once before when he was a 12-year-old boy. They were astounded at his teaching. But now, many years later, Jesus is walking up to the temple And what he should have seen was a temple filled with markers pointing towards him and his arrival. But that's not what he sees. Does not see Jewish worshipers worshiping his father, Gentiles worshiping his father, celebrating that which is to come, that which is pointing to him. He sees something very different. Look at verse 13 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father a house of trade. I haven't seen these in a while, but when I was growing up, there were these precious moments, figurines. I'd love them to see how they would do this one. When we think of this event in our minds, it often feels like 30 seconds. 30 second rage of a fit Jesus makes in the temple. But if you're not as aware of the size of Herod's temple, it is much larger than Solomon's. And Jesus basically interrupted a miniature city. That's what he did. Let me read you a quick historical description of this event. The part of the temple that Jesus cleansed was called the courtyard, some 35 acres, and was as far as the Gentiles could go. There were sections for each, we'll get into that another time. But this is the section for the Gentiles for worship. When Passover came, Jerusalem swelled to nearly half a million travelers who came to Jerusalem to make their Passover sacrifice. Josephus, the historian, computed the number of Jews present in Jerusalem at Passover to be no fewer than three million. And those Jews would need a lot of animals to sacrifice. 
whether a lamb or a bird, whichever the family could afford. So the number of lambs alone would be about a quarter of a million lambs if there were one lamb for a family of 10 or so. But conservative estimates may be closer to about 300,000, at least in Jesus' day. So there's the scene. It's a lot of animals. It's a lot of people. So once you know that bit of history, Jesus and the whip makes a lot of sense. One man, millions of people, thousands of animals, no way to amplify his voice, you start beating people. <laughs> Most likely Jesus went in, the very cords that were tying up the animals, he says he fastened them into a whip and begin to drive out the animals, caused a stampede. Then he proceeded to the money changers' tables. It says here, still, that's a lot of animals and relatively in a small area. And then there were the money changers who may have numbered in the thousands. So Jesus didn't run over and turn over one table and ran out four calves and a lamb. The point is, Jesus demonstrated severe anger and was making a point. Who knows how long it took him to do this? A long time. Not 30 seconds. Now, we are not told when, but the disciples would look back in this moment and remember the prophecy from Psalm 69.9. Read me verse 17 of John. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Why this zeal? What is John referring to? For one, the temple sounded more like a trading floor on the New York Stock Exchange than it did a court of worship for God. And what is the purpose of the house of God, or the, the temple? Isaiah 56, 7 says this, For my house shall be called a house of prayer, this is important, for all peoples. Not just the Jews. God had a special relationship with Israel. This is for sure. They were his people and he was their God, Exodus 6, 7. This was never an exclusive relationship based on physical descent. We learn this. God establishes his covenant with Israelites in order to finally expand the covenant community to include people from all nations as described in the book of Revelation at the last day. This commitment was implicit in God's call to Abraham when he promised to bless the nations through the patriarchs in Genesis 12. We also see in Isaiah 56, one through eight, God's desire for even the Gentiles to be counted among his people. So the court of the Gentiles now historically makes sense of why God is angry. Isaiah foresees a day when foreigners to Israel will join themselves to the nation and worship the Lord. Like the Jews, they will pray in the temple, which will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Well, among the other failures of the Lord's covenant people was that as a whole, they never fulfilled their call to reach the Gentiles and invite them to worship 
one true God. In the first century, the Jerusalem temple did have a courtyard of the Gentiles that measured about 35 acres where non-Jews could come and pray to Yahweh to experience the redemption through faith alone, offer sacrifices for their sins, have a relationship with the one true God. However, the Gentiles were not really welcomed there, as obvious from the account. And as believed, the popular Jewish mindset hoped that when the Messiah showed up, he would cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. What was really happening? When the Gentiles came to the court of the Gentiles in the first century Jerusalem, there was no welcoming awaiting there. You know, Paul experienced this in the book of Acts. They believed Paul had taken a Gentile past the court of the Gentiles and into where only the Jews could go, and so they arrested him and threw him in jail. And that's how much disdain they had, even for allowing them into the temple walls. So instead, the court was filled with merchants who sold animals for worshipers to bring as sacrifices money changers who exchanged Roman coins for shekels that had no images of the emperor on them and thus was a fit payment for the taxes. They actually were accomplishing a goal, a, a good goal, making things easier for worshipers. But in Jesus' second, by the way, he cleanses the temple twice. In Jesus' second cleansing, right before he ends up on the cross in Mark 11, he quotes Jeremiah in reference to what he is seeing going on into the temple. In Jeremiah 7:11, he says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So to go back and answer my original question, why did Jesus cleanse the temple with such obvious animosity? Because Israel had turned what's supposed to be the house of God where sinners come and experience reconciliation with God into a marketplace because they didn't understand what they were supposed to be doing. Israel wasn't concerned about reconciling sinful men to God. They were consumed with greed and opportunity. This temple that should have been a place pointing every person who entered to look and anticipate the Lamb of God was a place of bigotry and absent of any gospel message. That's what Jesus saw when he walked up. Both Jew and Gentile should be able to enjoy a glorious relationship with God, and yet it was a system of religion. The courtyard of the Gentiles was a place God had designed for prayer, reconciliation, restoration, communication with the gracious, redeeming God. You can only imagine when Jesus walks in. Have you ever tried to pray, have a serious conversation with God at a rodeo? or a farmer's market. Reconciliation was not their ambition. Prosperity was. They were the chosen people. They were secure because they were of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had somewhat kept the law. Gentiles were merely in the way. Let's go back to the story, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us by doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then Jesus said this, sorry, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Thankfully, John clarifies for us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The reason the religious leaders asked what authority Jesus had was simple. You could not make a change to any part of the temple unless you demonstrated you had authority from God to do so. Jesus comes in, sees the inappropriateness of the temple, and makes a change. You notice they didn't get upset at him for the change he made. I'm sure it's very obvious in their own minds they're wrong. They know what they're doing, but they've been getting away with it, so who cares? To Jesus. Responds, why did he do this? Well, Jesus does this as they ask for a sign. He gives them a riddle a riddle they cannot decipher. And the reason he gives them a riddle is because the cleansing of the temple is the sign. They just couldn't see it. He is God's authority because he is God. And they rejected him. That was his authority. Up to this point, Jesus has performed public miracles. People seen what he has done. In the very next chapter, Nicodemus comes up and talks to him. Okay, I've seen what you've done. Now let's have a conversation. They've seen the power of God, and yet they don't embrace him. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Jesus was demonstrating how Israel continued to fail God in the covenant, and he was there to refine them, and they didn't see it. They were so blind and arrogant He wouldn't even give them an example or a simple answer because the answer was standing in front of them and they refused to see it. Now, Jesus dealing with the religious society was not what we would consider to be normal. Let's all get along. Let's stop fighting with one another. Well, that's not how Jesus saw it. Turn real quick to Matthew chapter 12. This is a great example. Dealing with sinners and the self-righteous. When the self-righteous come ask for the gospel, Jesus gives them law. When the sinner comes, he gives them grace. Come unto me. I will give you rest from those people. Matthew 12, 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In the Old Testament, signs were used for the people of God to encourage their faith, to strengthen them, never used for the unbeliever. That was Jesus' point. Those who should have seen the sign and believed did not. And that's why God says you are wicked and evil because you've rejected the very message of grace that comes to you. And all of these events took place in Jesus' life. But there was one, there's a lot of events that took place in Jesus' life, but there was one that always stuck with the religious society, which was this one. Then, of course, Jesus knows this and does it again because it didn't fix the problem the first time, and then it leads to his death. If you're in Matthew, turn over to 20, chapter 27. They could have said a lot of things to Jesus on the cross, but this one stung. So what do they say to him? Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So why did John include this in his letter? Well, the importance, this is, how John's, this is how Jesus starts his ministry, pushes the religious society back on their heels and gives them no room for wiggle. You can't come to Christ in self-righteousness. In a moment, he's going to turn and talk to Nicodemus, Nicodemus showing up as a self-righteous man and throws him all kinds of things. You must be born again. Uh, I'm old now. How am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb? Plug out your eye if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Cut off your arm. Hate your parents. <laughs> but to those entrapped in sin, come to me. Come to me. John writes this account so that we, the believers, trust in a well-deserving Savior. Look at verse 22. John chapter 2. John 2, 22. Back to the story. When he was raised from the dead, it's at that point his disciples go, ah, now it all makes sense. The disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoke to them. John writes these things for us so that we would read them, see the bizarre nature of the events, and have faith in the grace of God. That is why. The children of God would believe in the Son of God. In closing, the last passage I want you to turn to is 1 Corinthians not to give you hope, we're not closing early. 
That's the last verse we're turning to. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, everything in the temple represented or had a moment of pointing to the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. The temple was a shadow of Christ to come. Starting in Genesis 3.15 with the first gospel to Adam and Eve, then following on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God was pointing to the redemption of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you get to the Mosaic law and the institution of the temple. We're all pointing to redemption in Christ. They're all pictures, a shadow. So you have thousands of years of history, and Jesus shows up on the scene. The Redeemer. And he's rejected. It's no wonder God would demonstrate such anger when his message was being so panhandled. Let's go back to the story real quick. You see, not to criticize the Israelites completely, bringing the animals into the courtyard made a lot of sense. For instance, in the narrative, you have people traveling from all over the world coming back to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's a lot simpler to travel those many miles without an animal, let alone trying to keep that animal from getting a blemish. Now, of course, the priests at the gate made things difficult because you would bring your animal to them and they'd say, nope, it doesn't meet God's standard. You have to buy one of our own. So over time, they ended up saying, instead of going across the river to the field where the money changers are, which are necessary, and where the animals are, they said, let's just bring them into the courtyard. We can do it all right here. It makes, a lot of, makes it things easier. Now, the point of changing the money was that they didn't want the temple taxes being paid with Caesar's image on it, so they would transition it into a shekel. So it was necessary and needed. But what was happening was that they were charging exuberant amounts of money for the animals and for changing of the money. So in the beginning, it wasn't a bad thing, but their true heart came out and revealed that they were not concerned with helping the Gentiles or helping the Jews. They wanted to help themselves. Well, the church, according to Scripture, it describes us as the temple now. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, look with me what Paul says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Using this language, the temple. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul uses this imagery of building and the references that Jesus is the foundation, that which we are built upon. Jump down to verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's good to take note here. You, the word there, do you not know? It's plural in the Greek. He is speaking to the church collectively, not individually. We've always translated this individually, but that's not his point, and this is why, verse 17. And if any one of you destroys God's temple, God will 
destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, what does Paul mean when he says God destroys them? What is the purpose of the temple? Going back from Genesis all the way to Paul. The purpose of the temple is the proclamation of redemption, the telling of the gospel. How is it that you would defile the temple according to the church? We're all told this. God's redemption, God's message of grace was being drowned out by men's wisdom of the age. People were coming into the church and focusing on the well speech, the well-spoken man who had much to offer in wisdom. And Paul says, I come to you as a simpleton, as one who speaks of little wisdom, so I might give you all wisdom. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. This little verse is so important. So let no one boast in man. So he explains what does it mean by defilement. Now we always think that it's relating to some kind of a sin in the church. But that's not... But Paul's not talking about the sin of morality at this moment, not in this section. He will later on. But here specifically, the message of the gospel is being drowned out by the wisdom of the world. Let me quickly read to you. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Peter 2, 4, he says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No, we don't make sacrifices anymore, but what do we proclaim? The sacrifice of the lamb. What do we participate in every week? The sacrifice, the symbol of the table. Paul says, beware to defile that message. The warning of Paul is that we would be weary of allowing the gospel to become unrealistic in our hearts and our minds. See, grace screams at our inner self-righteousness. I feel it. You feel it. There are times that I wince at grace. It feels naive and simple and even dangerous at times. What if we're wrong? is often what I hear. What if we have overemphasized grace? Then we are fools to be here this morning, according to Paul. If it's not all of grace, then we're fools. You'll never move past your need for hearing the message of grace. And once we aren't convinced of this anymore, we are where Paul warns us we have defiled his temple. It is a place where only his glory can be seen, not man's according to his works. Our works are not welcomed here. 
not as it relates to our standing in righteousness before God. We have to protect the purpose of this church. It is a house of prayer, a house where sinners find restoration to a holy God through grace, not works of man's wisdom. Now, unfortunately, the church at large offers man's wisdom on Sunday mornings. Ways to reconcile yourself back to God. But it's put a lot different. It's not so black and white. For years, men have treated the flock of God as a marketplace. Every week, consumers can come to church as they put on a display of advertisement. Here is how to make yourself, to make your life easier, your marriage better, your family more secure, a better job. And now I'm going to give you five ways to do that. Absent of the gospel, misinterpretation of a passage. The message of finding redemption in Christ is at best at the end or formality. The message of grace is as if a man, a grown man, has his own family, comes back to his father and asks his father for $1,000 so he can pay his rent. So his father says, no problem. I will transfer the money into your account today. Tomorrow, he gets a call from his wife. Where'd all this money come from? Oh, well, that was dad. He gave us money for rent. No, where'd all the money come from? What are you talking about? There's over a million dollars in our bank account. Where'd it come from? So he picks up his phone, calls his dad. Dad. Someone hacked my account. No, dad, why did you put a million dollars? I just needed $1,000. He says to his son, oh, you need more than that. And a million won't even suffice. You'll need more than that. The son's mind is trying to process. I didn't earn this. He earned it. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't wise with my money, clearly. I'm needing money to pay for rent. And what does his father say to him? You're going to need more. And the last thing he says to him, oh, and by the way, you don't need to pay me back because you can't. I know where you work. It's harsh. But there is that side of you that's like, why would a father ever do that? Why would that ever happen? That is grace. There's that moment that you receive it and go, ah, that's a little too much. It's a little over the top. I only need like a thousand, and yet you gave me a million. That's almost embarrassing. The song, Leaning on His Everlasting Arms, doesn't portray the believer in a stance of strength, but weakness. Grace shoves you on your heels keeps you off balance, so you're always grasping for something outside of yourself, and it should be for the grace of God. We, as depraved sinners, don't like to be told we're not secure in ourselves. And Paul says, don't let anybody change that message 
And that is an example will point to Jesus' anger in the temple when it does happen. We come to the Lord's table every week because we've been knocked on our heels. Once again, we are grasping for the grace of God, his arms to reach out and remind us, you're okay. It's not your performance before I saved you. It's not your performance after I saved you. His grace abounds. It's a powerful message. There are times up here I stand and I shiver and think to myself, I sound crazy. But it's true. Every time we come to this table, I think to myself, really? A million dollars? It seems excessive. I mean, nothing I did in the past and nothing I do in the future will ever determine my status before you? That's insane. What's even better about the gospel message is it doesn't clean your slate and send you out. He says, okay, not only am I gonna clean your slate, but I'm gonna come live inside of you so you have the capacity to obey me. That is good news. So let's go worship today. If you- Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.